Hi there, donks. It's Friday, October 18th, 2019, and this is episode three of the Luke Thomas live chat. I hope you're doing well. Now, it's not really live, because I'm recording this here in the morning in uh, sunny-ish Bogota, Colombia. Uh, I wanted to show you guys the mountains, and I'm going to in a second. I wanted to have that as the backdrop, but it, the better natural light comes off the mountains. But just to show you what I'm working with here, I'm on the balcony of my Airbnb. Have a gander at this. This is uh, it's pretty nice. Check this out. This is the neighborhood where I am shooting. Uh, this is the major thoroughfare called the Autopiste. You see the mountains further in the back over there. And then on the other side, actually you want to say right around there, just past those buildings, is something called the, uh, pardon me there, set that all up. Something called the Parque 93. It's like Park 93. And uh, it's a really cool park, tons of bars and restaurants right around there. Uh, Bogota is a huge city, it's like 10 million people. And as you can see, everybody's wearing coats. I know if you saw Mr. and Mrs. Smith with Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie many years ago, you might have seen them wearing, uh, you know, barely anything at all, hot as shit, and they're in Bogota, Colombia. Bogota, Colombia is cold. It's 50 degrees, it's in the mountains. It's actually higher in elevation than Mexico City. Uh, Cartagena is hot, uh, but, but Bogota is cold. So, cup of uh, Colombian coffee here in the morning. Mmm, that is delicioso. And I appreciate you guys tuning in. So let's do this. I'm gonna record this for about an hour, and then I'm gonna upload it. I'm doing this in the morning, which means some of your questions, you might be leaving them today. I'll miss them because the internet, like, there's many nice things about Colombia. The internet sucks. Uh, it's, it's terrible. So I'm gonna hopefully try and upload this and give myself a few hours so that by the time noonish comes around, we're ready to rock. All right. Anything's up for grabs? UFC Boston, UFC 244, <coughs> whatever. Inside MMA, outside of MMA, whatever on your mind. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. I'm gonna use my phone because I have quite the best place for my laptop. But I got all of your questions lined up here. And again, thank you to everybody who leaves questions. I really appreciate it. Okay, let's do this. First one. What happens to Weidman if he loses to Reyes? More specifically, if he gets finished again? Well, did you see the morning report from MMA Fighting this morning? He had Luke Rockhold, I guess he had gone on Ariel's show, and uh, he had said that uh, he's not really thinking about fighting right now. He spent all that time off. He came back, he ballooned up, he got his jaw broken against Jan Blachowicz, a guy who Three years ago, if you had said, oh, Luke Rockhold's going to go up to middleweight, or excuse me, light heavyweight, and he's going to fight, um, do you think he can beat Jan Blachowicz? You would, have never, you would have never thought twice about it. And he not only lost, he got finished, he got his jaw broken. Um, I don't know what happened. I, 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 the weight cuts obviously were a huge issue. It appears to me that he had a lot of damage he absorbed in the gym, uh, in part maybe by constantly having to be lower in weight than he should have been. That probably exacerbated injury. Uh, that's one thing we don't talk about. We talk about the, the problems of weight cutting, right? Like the week of or the weeks leading out where you're depriving yourself and uh, how you have no energy and you can't think right and it affects your mood. I, I also sort of wonder if it makes you more injury prone as well. If your body literally doesn't have the nutrients um, it needs both your brain and your organs and your soft tissue. Um, I mean, that's a hunch. I'm not you know, talk to Dr. Andy Gulpin, not me, but I, I certainly wonder about that. In any event, I think the injury load got him, and I think obviously, obviously having some opportunities outside of fighting with 
um, uh, polo and everything else, he just decided he had enough. And uh, he didn't officially quit, but my, you're asking well, what happens to Weidman. You know, I'm guessing what happens, what happens to Weidman, probably the same kind of thing. I think he's, what, 34, 35 years old or so. If he loses, I think he's lost three of his last four, a lot of those by devastating KO. You go up a weight class against a guy who uh, is a top contender up there. And uh, if you lose to him, I don't know that he'll hang it up. You might say, well, I wanted to get the weight cut right. But, like, here's the interesting part about uh, Rockhold and Weidman. In Rockhold's case, you really thought that he'd benefit from less of a weight cut. You really believe that. I believe that. Um, but then he kind of overdid it to me. I did a whole thing on this on Dissected. I went back and I looked at the first Michael Bisping fight with Luke Rockhold, the one that was in Australia. Rockhold had a beard at the time. And God, dude, he, he just looked awesome. He looked awesome. He was fleet of foot. He was leaning, getting out of the way. You know, he was constantly keeping Bisping at the edge of end of his punches. Uh, and then you finished him with a one-arm guillotine. Like that Luke Rockhold, people are like, oh, you know, what happened to him? There's a lot of different reasons, but just never forget, like the faith that was initially stored in Luke Rockhold was not accidental. It was really on purpose and it was well-deserved. He looked awesome. The whole point is by the time you get to the Jan Blahovich fight at 205, Rockhold doesn't do a lot of slipping. He does a lot of leaning, but not a lot of slipping. Most of his defense comes from measuring range, leaning, and then using his feet to get out of the way. But he was so heavy, he didn't really move. It's like all the things that made you who you were at, at middleweight, you took those away by going too far in terms of your musculature and weight at 205. Now, I don't know exactly, I'm sure less of a weight cut helps Chris Weidman. It's just not clear to me exactly how. And also, you know, you gotta get that weight cut right. You need to do it correctly. Um, so is he gonna be too heavy? Is being heavier better because you want to go back to a wrestling style? Remember, your weight needs to be a function of how you fight. In other words, Rockhold developed a style that was real mobility-based. Not super crazy mobility, but you need to be kind of light on his feet. If you're going to add weight, you need to add weight in conjunction with the understanding that you have to preserve that style that got you there, unless you want to radically change. But that seems, I don't know, that doesn't seem like the best idea. In any event, if he loses that, you know, where, where, where are you supposed to go from that point? I, I'm not suggesting that he can or should or will quit, but you would have to imagine that would be something he'd at least be contemplating. All right, next. Will Bellator grow as a company, stay stagnant, or phase out like Pride and Strikeforce, in your opinion? Well, Pride and Strikeforce didn't, well, Pride kind of phased out. It got bought out. Strikeforce didn't really phase out nearly as much. Um, it was still, there's debates about how viable it was as a business, but I'm led to believe it was still pretty viable. In any event, so I don't, I don't know that I would say it's fair to suggest that it phased out, but Bellator has been surprising to me. We now have some good numbers about this. I'm going to say it once, I've said, I've said it once, I'll say it again. Uh, John Nash, uh, Paul Gift, and uh, the gentleman from MMA Payout, I forget his name, Jason, I forget his last name. Please forgive me. They did some great work with that lawsuit. So we found out the numbers that Bellator was making. Um, they did suffer a loss, I think around like a, like a straight up numerical loss in number. Not really a decline, but a literal negative uh, value. I think around 2014, which I think was right around that switch from Rebney to Coker. Um, since then, they've had a couple of years of modest growth. 
and then the last few have been exceptional. Um, I would have been surprised to, I, I, to a degree, I, I'll be honest, I did not know that they were making that kind of money. They appear to be doing quite well. I encourage you to go look up those numbers um, from John Nash and Bloody Elbow, all those guys over there, and again, Paul Gift as well. Um, what they basically found from the court documents from the fighter, the fighter lawsuit has been just an absolute treasure trove of information to really get a clear understanding of, of um, who makes money in the industry and how and why. And in any event, Bellator is uh, doing quite well. They're doing quite well. They've they made a huge reduction in labor force. They laid off, a ton, I'm told they laid off a ton of people. Jimmy Smith was part of that. Um, although I think he sort of read the writing on the wall and decided to make a jump before he got the ax. But in any event, or you know, they cut his salary or whatever. In any event, um, Bellator is doing interesting stuff. They got noted for being part of that old man market, and they still kind of are, but I think they've dialed that back a little bit. Um, Sean Sheehan over at Severe MMA has been a guy who's been real good about documenting. When the UFC did the UFC Dublin show, when I guess Connor fought Diego Brandao, you know, this was such a coronation, not merely of McGregor and, and uh, SBG, but also of Irish MMA to a degree, right? Like these guys had fully arrived to a point where they could not only host a UFC show there, but an Irish guy would headline, and the Irish guy headlining would be the hottest guy in the game, you know? It was just this really great moment for all of those individual actors and then the space in general. In any event, since then, UFC has just not really kept up with the next wave of Irish MMA. Bellator has. Apparently Bellator is like the, the main promotion there. I mean, you'd have to ask the Irish specifically about this, but my sense is, they sort of get that the UFC is the biggest dog in town in terms of like its global presence, but in terms of what it means for Irish MMA, Bellator's your brand leader now. You know, Bellator's the one who's out there doing the shows where you have uh, all of the next up and coming wave, in UK to a degree as well, though less so in that particular sense. Um, but you know, with with a lot of it's still a lot of SBG guys, but not exclusively that. They've established themselves as like a really strong, viable presence in that market. And my hunch is they're gonna try and milk that for all it's worth uh, with, you know, with James Gallagher and many others. And they might try that in other markets as well. You know, I still think Canada is underserved. There's gonna be pockets of Asia they're probably not gonna to wanna to go to because of one, but that maintain that Japanese relationship. One's ties to Japan always seem a little, not forced, but not as robust as Coker's pipeline into Ryzen. That could be totally ignorant from afar, but it just feels that way. So, so there's that. I just feel like, uh, you're saying, what am I saying? They're gonna be regional brand leaders everywhere? No, I think they're gonna find key markets where they can own the space and then continue to get, uh, again, they sign from the top down, build from the bottom up, which is sort of their mantra, and then they'll continue that. But I just think with the UFC, here's the deal. The UFC tried for a while to be like omnipresent, and they're very good about it, but it's just impossible for one brand to do that and to be effective, and it leaves pockets. And Bellator, I think, is all too happy to take over some of those pockets that remain underdeveloped, underused, under, under, um, I don't know. Um, yeah, but I think they're gonna dial back the old man thing a little bit, just a little bit, just a little bit. Some dogs barking, y'all. All right. 
Whose recent losing streak surprised you the most? Cody Garbrandt, Darren Till, or James Vick? For sure it's got to be Cody Garbrandt. Uh, of the three you mentioned, only one of them ever reached UFC gold, and he did it within a year where he was mocked, like, oh, he went from unranked to champion in a single year, but he did. It was a remarkable turn of events, and if you, and many of you for sure did, of course, watch that fight with Dominic Cruz where you're just sitting there looking and you're saying to yourself, um, boy, isn't that amazing what he did, right? Isn't that amazing he was able to be so capable against a guy like Dominic Cruz where his footwork was on point and strategy was on point and he was quicker, knocked him down several times, was break dancing in the middle of the fight. It was such an amazing moment, right? He, he had done so well. And then to see him fight well beneath his ability, like in his prime or early prime, was just bizarre. Like, okay, maybe Dillashaw had his number, and again, I don't want to get to the old EBO thing, but when just the point I'm trying to make is maybe Dillashaw in those two fights, when they went and clashed, um, in like, whatever the cage doors were closed, that person versus that person, maybe that person had his number. But even then, it doesn't really ring true to me because. He was planting his feet and throwing a lot more than he, like for long stretches, which is how Dillashaw was able to time him. And yeah, I, it's like he got really, really good. And then, uh, and I, by the way, I want to be clear about this. I think he can get really, really good again. But then he fought well beneath his ability. In the case of Darren Till, he had fought well, but then there was this estimation through bravado that he that there might the secret might be that he is much better, and then when he was tested, couldn't do that against like a Woodley or a Masvidal. In the case of James Vick, he had a nice run, nine and one, right? Uh, and then same kind of thing. The competition got a little steeper, and the, against Gaethje or against Felder, um, and against Nico Price, and I forget the third one that he had lost to. But um, by that point, it was. It was a function of not merely keeping a winning streak alive, but keeping a winning streak alive at scale as competition increases. I had James Vick in studio before his, uh, sorry, Dan Hooker, before the Hooker fight. And uh, I asked him, I was like, you know, what's gonna be different this time? And he, or, you know, what do you make of all these losses? And his answer basically was, look, man, I got into this game kind of late. And I need to get all the training in that I can get in. I need to do everything possible that I can do to put myself in a position to win. These, a lot of these guys have been wrestling since age seven or striking since they were 12. You know, he got into it in his 20s. Like, he is so behind the curve um, that that was a bit of a problem. For example, that's not the case with Cody Garbrandt. Cody Garbrandt has been athletically involved in either wrestling or boxing since his uh, teens. And I had it to show for it in the Dominic Cruz fight. Um, and in the case of Darren Till, I'm not exactly sure about his martial arts background in, deep into his early years, but he was he was escalating, and he had that nice win over um, Donald Cerrone, obviously, and then the one against Thompson was weird, but you know they put him up against another level, and it just didn't go right, and it has not gone right a couple of times since. So. Plus, there was the whole weight cut issue, and which which Vic also faced a little bit, but not as much. I remember I shook Vic's hand at UFC 205. I forget who we fought at UFC 205. I shook his hand from the weight cut, and his hands were freezing, and we were indoors because he was just so drained. 
uh, physically. I remember, I'll never forget that his hands were ice cold. I was like, wow, your hands are cold. He's like, wake up, bro. Um, in any event, yeah, so Cody to me is the one that's the real, he still has, uh, you never want to close the door on either, any of these guys. Vic, I think, is very talented. That Nico Price fight was a bad fight for him. Nico is talented, but Nico's one of these guys who's like willing to fight a little bit weirdly and take risks. And he scores damage. He has, he scores damage from everywhere. Nico Price has the best ground and pound off of his back. Off of his back. If you put him on his back, what he can do there, either with you at distance or on top of you and in close range, you think of ground and pound as the guy on top. He has totally inverted that relationship, has he not? He's amazing in that regard. I've never seen somebody quite like him. And that's a hard guy to fight if what you really need is a steady, calm win. Like if you were just, to, if, if someone tried to like out technique James Vick, obviously people have done that in one, but I'm saying as a, as a, as a builder fight at 170, there's a lot of guys I think he could have beaten. That Nico Price, he's tricky, man. He's tricky. Credit to him, it was a fair win. Uh, let's see, Luke, considering Nunez beat GDR, does she do a trilogy with Bullet at 135 or go to GOAT status by dropping down to 125 and steal Valentina's belt? She cannot make 125. If UFC bought Bellator and all of its fighters, what Bellator fighter would most likely become UFC champion? Probably Patricio Freire. If you could be a US citizen of any country other than the US, what would it be, Donk? I don't know, I don't have a, I have a burning desire to be a citizen of any other place. Colombia's nice to visit, but I mean, I guess if it made sense for like my kid or something, I would do it. I don't know, I, but no. Spain, maybe? Love Spain. Don't tell my wife that. All right. Why do you think Conor McGregor wants the Frankie Edgar fight so much? By the way, did that one, did that, did that news land with, and the crowd goes mild. Whoa, nobody cared. On the surface, I see his apparent respect for Frankie and what, argue, and what is arguably a more winnable matchup than the top contenders at 155. I have a feeling most fans see this as Connor picking what he may believe is a tune-up fight for Habib. So how much would it do for his stock if the fight is made, win or lose? It seems like a lose-lose situation he is creating for himself. Surely he, he should fight someone in the top five at 155 if he wants to be seen as a credible contender of that division. If this were boxing, they would make that fight. They would make that fight. And frankly, they'd be right to do it. Conor McGregor needs a tune-up, y'all. I don't know why, like, I said this before, and someone reached out to me and they made some stupid point. Who did I say needed a tune-up? Rob Whitaker. I said the UFC did him wrong by not doing a tune-up, and they're like, but that's a crazy thing to say because the UFC doesn't do tune-ups. Yes, I'm well aware that they do not do this kind of a thing. Um, they did, in fact, Nurmagomedov got lucky once. I forget, maybe one of them, it was one of the Ferguson fights. Somebody dropped out and he got Daryl Horcher on short notice, and that was one of uh, Nemergamedov's returns. It ended up being like it wasn't designed to be a, a, a tune-up fight, but it ended up just being a tune-up fight in the end, and I think it did him a lot of good. Dude, tune-up fights work. That's why Bellator does a lot of them. Tune-up fights work. That's why boxing does a lot of them. They work, and they also preserve someone's marketability. And, may, and maybe to a degree, you know, there's a little uh, finesse and sleight of hand there where people are getting rewarded for maybe things they shouldn't be getting rewarded for, but also if you have someone like Conor McGregor, dude, he needs a tune-up. Need, I, I don't know, I, and it's not a slight on Conor in, the, in, in any capacity at all. It's, it's the right call for him. He needs it. And uh, 
don't know what to say, man. It, 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 yeah, they would make it at 155. Um, I suspect that McGregor would win by virtue of you know sort of being the bigger athlete. I think obviously uh, Frankie can still wrestle but a little bit longer in the tooth. He might get taken down a little bit, but uh, I suspect in general he'd be able to stuff it or not get overwhelmed by it. Um, and then he's like, you know, I'm going to donate my purse to charity. Yeah, dude, there's a lot of bad news about Conor McGregor right now. There's a lot of really bad news. And I know the Irish are not allowed to talk about it due to their privacy laws, but uh, there are multiple reports out from credible um, news agencies, including but not limited to the old gray lady herself, New York Times, um, where Conor is alleged let's be clear about that, to have been involved in multiple incidents of sexual assault. Now, in the end, we will see what happens. What is the truth? Fuck if I know, man. I'm not in Ireland. I don't know, I don't know what the answer is. But I know it's kind of weird to have a life where you're accused multiple times over time of being involved with heinous crimes like that. That doesn't happen very often, uh, even for the rich and famous. And you're totally innocent all the time. I mean, it's possible. Again, I don't know what the answer is, but it's just a bad time for him, and I think he feels it. And between, like, the lack of enthusiasm over the news about fighting Frankie Edgar and then all these other problems that he's got, um, you know, he did that, that apology tour that, you know, does it mean anything in the end? I guess we'll see. To me, it seemed, now having looked back on it, probably not a whole lot to it, but jury's still out a little bit, I suppose. Um, he's looking to get right. He's looking to get right. And just from the professional side of his... his uh, life, just his fighting side, dude, it makes sense. He's been off for all this time. It should give you some appreciation for Mayweather now, where Mayweather would take off long stretches of his career, come back, and you know, towards the end of his career there, I've said it before, I'll say it again, he was kind of picking people, ooh. Oh, there's a fight. <laughs> there's a fight. If it gets any worse, I'll let you know. They're just yelling, and they're not actually like throwing anything. There's a donk on a scooter and somebody else. Yeah, it looks like it's broken up. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. It wasn't a fight, I'm exaggerating. But they were, they were, they were arguing. They were arguing. That's funny. Um, where was I? Uh, talking about Connor and uh, Frankie. Um, I forgot where I left off exactly, but the point being is... He could really benefit from getting a fight against a tough guy who's well-respected. He's probably the his girl. I'm talking about Mayweather. Yes, Mayweather was accused of, like, getting Canelo a little pre-prime, getting Cotto a little post-prime. But he would still fight some pretty big names the whole time and you know, these long stretches of time that he had off. And he would come back and he would win. And he'd be like, God damn, man, you take all that time off and you come back and you beat these guys. The only way to do that is to be so far ahead of everyone that that you know you you're willing to concede that I'm gonna give up time and let them catch up but I'm so far ahead it doesn't matter how much or you know very little uh, how much time I take off they can't catch up I don't think Connor's like that anymore and I, you know there's a question about whether he ever was certainly in the striking department he was quite formidable some of the best we've ever seen in 155 but uh, in the rest of his game I don't know that that was really all that true and then you had everyone else just keep training, keep training. Dude, take time, take his time off, and this game is perilous. And again, St. Pierre's the same way. It took four years off. Now, he was always training, still not actively competing, and then coming back and then winning another title, another weight class. Like, it's remarkable. But, you know, whatever you want to say about Connor's troubles, just on the professional side, should he get a tune-up? Does that make sense? Yeah, of course it makes sense. It makes a ton of sense.
Uh, where do you see the sport shift in the future? Calf kicks are now popular. Any gaps in training start to emerge? We see more people try and start to imitate stuff like switching stances and the Dagestani handcuff. You see all that stuff already. Um, just a question of how good everyone else can get at it. Um, where is it headed? Here's where it's headed as far as I can tell. Not everyone will do this because not everyone can do this. But the Leon Edwards, Colby Covington type of fighter is going to be a little bit more common, I think, going forward. Consider, and I made this point and dissected before, what is Leon Edwards really good at? A number of things. But in every case, I got hair in my mouth. It's getting to the half position, 50-50 standing in the clinch, half guard on top. Uh, when he takes the back, he'll put one hook in and he kind of drives you against the fence. And so what he ends up doing there is he gets enough control where 50-50 in the clinch is neutral, but he's really good at that space. But he'll get on half guard on top, he'll get the hook in on the bottom, and he's not fully taking the back. Now, he can't take the back on occasion. And he's not really moving the mount. He might move on the mount on occasion. But in general, that's what he likes to do. He likes the half positions. Why? Because he can still rack up points with the judges doing that. Favorability. He can bail if the position becomes defensively compromised. And it doesn't, it requires to get good at and to hold someone there. Please don't misunderstand me. You have to be very, very good at that. But think about jujitsu. If I told you, as far as you'll get in the advancement of a process is half guard, how good would you, how good would your mount be? It'd be really bad, right? Which isn't to say he has a bad mount. All I'm saying is, the flip side is, how good would your half guard defense be on top? It'd be very good. What I'm saying is, you have so much time to train. If you really focus on knee cut passing, holding side, knee on belly, taking mount, holding mount, ground and pounding for mount when they switched, holding to the back, you get this a lot of time. It takes a lot of time. You know what takes less time? To not try to move to those positions. Hold half guard, bang on them there, make sure they don't take the back, and just kind of stay static. Not still, but you're not really trying to advance. Take the back, put the one hook in. You don't have to worry about getting too high with both hooks and getting thrown off and then have to worry about it. It's like this half position everywhere they go. Colby Covington does the exact same thing. He throws those chokes on, kind of, a little bit, not really. You know, he takes the back, kind of, not really. He's, high, he's holding with a tight waist. He's just on you enough to be on you to be the guy who the judges can look at and say, that person's winning. But he's not on you enough where he's really fully advancing through the course of the position. And when you have to train so many different things and you have to get good in so many different ways, it actually makes a lot of sense to do it that way. It's actually pretty smart. It's pretty smart. Um, it's not all that pleasing to the fans, but it allows you to get halfway through something and you can spend more time on that smaller universe of control and dominance and you can get really good at it. And yeah, they might work on their mount a little bit, but they don't really worry about it. They want to get to the point where like, I guarantee you Leon Edwards submission defense from half guard is excellent. I, be I bet you it is. I bet you it is top notch because he spends so much time getting to there, holding there, ground and pounding there, and then stuffing attacks from there. Or, you know, uh, submission defense from half guard up. Uh, maybe sweeping defense as well, like his base. I bet his base is really good there. So, you get the idea. It's like, that's where I think things are kind of headed. Now, in the striking department, I just think, uh, I told before, the fainting that Adesanya does, those guys at City Kickboxing about a year ago really convinced me of that. When they were saying, like, hey, he who faints more, he who faints better will beat somebody who doesn't. Right? And I, I just think they've been absolutely right about it this whole time. Adesanya is obviously a special case, not everyone could be him, but, 
but they're right about that. So to me, it's like uh, that's where we're kind of headed. So I think actually, I don't know this for a fact. I don't want to say this is true because Habib is so fun to watch on the ground. Uh, but I tend to wonder how much of the half position guys you're going to get. While in the striking department, I actually think it's going to get a lot better because it has uh, striking. It's actually the opposite of, 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 of grappling in MMA. Striking has much more room to grow and get better. Grappling has always been pretty good in MMA, at least relative to the other arts. And I actually think now folks are dialing back how specific they want to get in terms of their control. They're actually reducing that a little bit because it's, that workload is so heavy. They're going a little bit in the opposite direction. Habib is an outlier relative to what we're seeing commonly in the space these days. All right, let me get through some of these a little bit more quickly. God, the fight between Ali and, and Abe. I like Abe. I don't know what's happening. I, I, the fact that that's even a story in MMA, that two guys, were, two managers were fighting, and I realize only one is to blame, but it's just sad. Um, do I think McGregor actually fights Edgar? I do not. Please psychoanalyze adults that unironically watch pro wrestling. I'll get in way too much trouble. Would you put uh, Rogan right up there with Ronda, Connor, and Dana as one of the biggest contributors to MMA's growth? That's always an interesting one, right? Um, I don't know that I put him up there, but he's important. He's really important. I actually, um, he's not my favorite commentator. Let me be clear about that. He's not my favorite commentator. I think uh, for me, Cruz is. Your mileage may vary. I'd have Cruz as like 1A, and I'd have Cormier as like 1B. I mean, they're neck and neck, you know, they're really great. And Anik is obviously, uh, as a play-by-play -play guy, tremendous. Um, but here's the reality about, about Joe Rogan. Um, before his podcast was ever a thing, and he was just commentating, he was a very important piece of the UFC puzzle, critically so. I think he's always had a style of commentary where you know, just to be real about it, it's not, yes, it is focused on the, the tales, but it's not like, it's not as detail specific as Cormier. It's not as, it's definitely not as detail specific as Cruz. And so what I like from those guys is I like the details, but here is what made Rogan so special. Number one, he was already this sort of celebrity from stand-up comedy and news radio and everything else. Um, and two, to, to me, the bigger part was, dude, he just had the ability, and I'm, I'm using a sort of metaphor here, um, or your, your imagination, he just had a way to speak into the ear of the casual fan so effortlessly. So effortlessly. He has a great ability to set a narrative. In fact, it's what sometimes gets him in trouble because his narrative, um, his ability to set a narrative and to, and to be an orator, a gifted orator for that is very compelling. And so sometimes when he's wrong, because inevitably, I'm wrong, he's wrong, everyone's wrong time to time, uh, he gets a lot of pushback for it because the casual fans who don't know any better, you know, sort of really willingly accept it. Um, and it's not this, I hope this does not sound like a dig. I'm trying to make a point. When he's on in that prime of his career, when he was doing all of those shows, what he was so good at was, was taking a casual fan and not really explaining some of the action, but in telling you why the action was great. And not merely why it was high level, separate. 
why you should care, what was magical about it, what was, in the words of Ray Hudson, magisterial about it, and what was special, and it made it, di it, made it both digestible and interesting, both scientific and artistic. That was really where he shined. And in today's modern MMA, I don't know that that is as valuable where the fan base is a caught up to a strong degree, relative to how it used to be anyway. And then secondly, I think the other part would be, um, you know, MMA is kind of in the United States kind of be kind of, it's kind of is, it's kinda, it is what it is at this point. Like you get another big star, a bunch of casual fans will come in, but more or less the people who are going to watch MMA watch it and the people who aren't aren't. And the key is to find people who are the crossover stars who get the ones who are like, oh, I'll watch if Connor is fighting or Ronda is fighting or, you know, that kind of a thing. So his style of commentary I don't think is, is as relevant today as it was. However, the period where he was doing the commentary was this really critical period, arguably the most critical period, where you needed someone just, I mean, honestly, if you had had Daniel Cormier as your commentator when the UFC was coming up, his style would not have been as valuable back then, right? Now it's more valuable because we're in a different space. Back then, I don't know if that would have been as valuable. But Rogan was extreme. He was absolutely the right guy at the right time. He, I couldn't have imagined a better, a better person at that time to do what he was doing. Today, I think it's a little bit less of the case, um, which is not a dig. Everyone's style is important for a time. This live chat will go out of favor <laughs> probably sooner rather than later. What the thing that a YouTube, this very thing that I'm putting this on, this will not, this will not have relevancy forever. It will go away. Um, but for a point in time, it might have a certain degree of value. And, and that's really what it was. So, you know, on the same level as those other people, I don't know, it's hard, that, that's a hard question to parse, but what particular role did he play? That's the one that I think he played. And I think it was extremely valuable. What percentage of UFC profits is a fair amount to cover fighters' wages? And how much are they currently getting? They're currently getting around, um, well, we thought 20%, but actually less than that. It's a little bit closer to 15. And how much do they currently get? Yeah, give me a breakdown. Yes. Uh, again, John Nash, Paul Giff, they got all those documents. Uh, it was around 20%, but it's actually in the mid to high teens is around what they were getting. That seems, that seems uh, abusively low. Abusively low. Right? So, how high would it be? I think the idea that it would be 50-50 seems a bit to me like a bit of a fantasy. Somewhere in the 30s sounds about right, but of course in the end, whatever you get is what you can negotiate. Right, how much, oh, Ed, this good of your work, job will pay you, uh, I don't know, whatever it is, let's say 50,000. 50,000 to do a job, and you go in there and you say, I want 70. Well, they might tell you to go pound sand, but let's say you can negotiate for it, for whatever reason, uh, that's what you're worth. You're, you're worth whatever you, they, you can uh, get them to pay you. All right. How many hours per day do you spend not working? Sleep and then the occasional moment for my kid or like a movie or something. If I'm awake, I'm almost always working. Which is not healthy, but it is the way it is. I had mentioned that book I had read before. By the way, I had somebody call in to my radio show and they go, if you don't like communism, how can you support a UBI? It's like, why would you call in and tell me things that nakedly demonstrate you don't understand what a UBI is, or frankly communism at that point, but okay.
because I was ranting about the NBA in China. Not going to get into the whole UBI thing again, but there was one part of her chapter in the UBI. Why would some people be opposed to a universal basic income? Many reasons. One of them is Americans, uh, they really don't, they want a little help, but they don't, they don't want handouts. You can even go back to the writing of de Tocqueville and you'll see it over and over again. There is this association in America and maybe in other parts of the world if you're watching this. Um, this isn't necessarily the case where you live, but here in America, well, I'm in Columbia, but in America, there is a belief that um, what, is, what is honorable is work, what is part of our identity is work, what makes us separate is our work ethic, this Protestant work ethic. Um, if you look at research around work, a lot of people uh, find their friends through work. Um, they, they, they measure the people in the 2008 crisis of the of the uh, the financial crisis, and they found people who were on that who were on um, lengthy unemployment. They were lonelier because they didn't have as much social social connection by virtue of a lack of work. You might think, "Wow, you have all this free time to go hang out with friends," but that's really not the way that it works for many many people. So that work isn't merely dignity for having a role in society or a way to earn income. But one of the objections to UBI is that Americans have not even a love affair with work, but it is part of the fabric of our identity built into who we are is earning things from the sweat of your brow, but doing it with, with you know, a labor of love and respect for oneself and for everyone else. And um, this is how we forge ourselves through our lives. This is who we are. Work is who we are. And to a degree that is, I think, a little bit unhealthy, but, you know, Americans really there is, that's really true, I think. It, there are a lot of people who, um, you know, work, I, I don't want to go, for some people it defines them, but it, more than just defining people um, and giving them a sense of purpose, it, it, um, it, it makes them happy. They can't imagine a life without it, you know? So just saying, well, we're going to give people a certain amount of money each month. To some people, that, that, that it, would de it would defy how they've come to understand themselves. In any event, the answer is I work a lot, so probably too much. Uh, real quickly, any thoughts on... Let's see. You, Luke, if UFC revoked your media credentials and banned you for life, would you cry about it for an hour in morning combat? Uh, no, I would not. Guys, my whole career has been based on the fact that at any point in time, the UFC could hit the nuclear option and I need to have some ability to push back and, and survive. A lot of these people, and this is true widely of MMA media, um, they attach themselves to a corporate brand and that corporate brand has to maintain some kind of favorable access. And that, that, don't misunderstand, that doesn't mean like they're calling up UFC like, hey, what, what should the headline be? But in general, you know, going to shows, doing event stuff, less so on the heavy opinionated work, although some, and you know, just sort of maintaining a bit of a balance there. And then, but, but if that's your whole life, where everything you give, you give to a corporate partner, and that corporate partner has to maintain some degree of reasonable connectivity to the brand, what happens when all that goes away? It means you go away. And I knew that from the word go. I'd seen people around me just go away. Uh, because the UFC made them go away. But what if you could forge an identity 
that was separate from that. Now there are trade-offs to that too, which is there's a degree of visibility you lose by not being a part of that constant traveling circus. Uh, and I have lost a degree of visibility as a consequence of that. But um, I've also, like, I don't, credentials are nice. They're nice. And the people who work in UMCPR, they are very nice people. I do not need them. I've never needed them. They don't, they don't, like, on a week of work that I do, what about that has anything to do with access? I have built my identity on the very idea that you don't need it. Now, that takes time and that's hard to do. And frankly, I don't think everyone could get away with it, but I could get away with it. So I did. Simple as that. Anyway, I work too much. Thoughts on LeBron's comments about China? Yeah, they were pathetic. Um, you know, look, to a degree, we're all kind of hypocrites. I'm wearing Nikes. I don't know where the Sony camera was built, but I'm guessing probably in a place where manufacturing was relatively cheap. And in a globalized market, disentangling um, your consumer choices from ethical traps when you have such a behemoth like China who just defines the global supply supply trade. I don't know how you do that as your average consumer. I really don't know how you do it. There's some things you can do, obviously, but it's very difficult. It's very difficult. So to a degree, we are all culpable. But there's one thing I want to mention. Um, and someone was like, well, you know, it's, what do you really expect LeBron to do? Look, man, I'm not telling LeBron not to take the money, a huge portion of the money that he gets from sponsors or from the NBA. The teams is a function of the growth of China and this overall rev share. I'm not in any way against that, dude. Get your money. Like, I, you know, it's fine. Um, and and if, if the average consumer is buying shit from China, then what could we what could we really say about what he should be doing? It's not fair to him or any, any other athlete. But, what, but when you're asked to, to give a nominal, verbal commitment to democracy, you probably should, right? That's not that hard, you know? And that might come at a cost, but um, be brave. I, don't, I mean, don't be pathetic. I don't, I don't know what else to say. Oh, well, Luke, you don't have nearly as much to lose. Yeah, you're right, I don't. Um, probably a lot easier for me to say, but I, I just think as a general human being, if you can't give a nominal, verbal, like, I think democracy's good, I don't know what we can really expect from you and why you should be taken seriously on any other kind of real ethical lapse in society. But there was one key point about this that I didn't get to last week that I think is worth mentioning here. I saw uh, several people say this, like the time to get mad at the NBA, according to this argument, was when they first went to China. Like uh, now it's too late, like they're all tied in together. Uh, and that's really not correct. Um, when, when, when David Stern got involved with the NBA, China was in a very different place. And the belief was at the time, like it was still an authoritarian regime, but the belief was at the time, like do you guys know where basketball comes from? It, came, it was an early 19th, I think maybe even, a, uh, it was an early 20th century, maybe even a 19th century uh, invention of the, of the YMCA. It was Christian missionaries who had spread it around the world. And when Mao Zedong came to power in China, he had eliminated all kinds of Western influence after this whole decade of uh, despair and humiliation that the Chinese had suffered, but he had kept basketball. And it had been a sort of a recreational thing that had people had, had played, and then the NBA started sending over highlights, and the Chinese government would censor it and then um, put them on, and then Jordan comes around, and these shoe companies become enmeshed in this whole basketball culture. And then the big turning point was 2002 with Yao Ming. Point being is, um, before all of that, not as many consumers had been lifted out of poverty. Like, the one thing that the multinational corporations could take credit for suppose, is that they did really, and the market reforms in China helped lift a lot of people out of poverty, 
to enable them to buy Nike shoes and to go to NBA stores and pay tickets for NBA games or preseason ticket games, whatever. But the belief was at the time was that through these market reforms and Western presence in China, we'd be able to open them up democratically. And at the time, look, this is not about a defense of Bill Clinton, but he has famously said at the time, in the early 90s, that we, th we thought the internet would liberate China and it would liberate everyone. And his famous quote was, trying to control the internet is like trying to nail jello to the wall. Um, and, you know, it's easy to look back on that and say that's crazy, but at the time, leading internet scholars or te telecom scholars and um, I think human rights advocates kind of believe that was true. So to say the situation was the same then as it is now and the moral complicity is the same, it's really not accurate. It's not accurate. What has happened over time is that yes, China's market reforms have lifted a lot of people out of poverty, that's good, but the internet and its evolution has enabled this authoritarian regime to exercise extraordinary control in ways that they were never able to before and the belief that their market reforms and this Western presence of Google and China and Marriott and NBA would have this Western influence on them, it turned out to not be true. So now here's the problem. Now you have to reconcile with how those ideas were wrong, right? Oh, it was always, it was always this case. No, it was not. No, it was not. The problem now is it is clearly different. And because it is different and now they weren't rounding up millions of Uyghur Muslims back then. Now they are. Now they're putting them in concentration camps. Now the moral question is different. That is precisely the problem. The time to criticize the NBA was not back in the 80s insofar as the best we could know. The time is to say, let us inventory the current situation and then say, where are we now? And where are we now is a very, very different place. Not a true argument at all. Let's jump to a few of these. Do you think Dern and Crohn's losses last week tell us anything about what it takes for jiu-jitsu competitors to be successful in MMA? If so, what? Yeah. Um, different problems. I almost did my, I probably should have in retrospect because nobody cared about Yuani and Jacek's fight, which was surprising to me, but no traffic for her. Um, they have different problems. Dern's problem is that she doesn't have sufficient takedowns. Crone's problem is that she does, he doesn't have sufficient takedowns. He doesn't have sufficient striking either. Well, I guess the difference for me is that Crone... God, it's complicated. Um, the best way I can explain it is, Dern is at least on the path of striking maturity to get herself to a place where she can be competent there. And she is following the known best practices of the industry as a North Star. Crone appears to be not doing that. I don't know exactly where he's doing his striking training. And again, he showed, please don't misunderstand me, an insane amount of heart and guts. And I love his jiu-jitsu. His jiu-jitsu is so great. I mentioned on Morning Combat the two matches you should go see from ADCC several years ago were him versus JT Torres and him versus Gary Tone. And I'll give you another one in the gi. Metamoris won when he beat uh, Otavio Souza in the gi. Took his back from like a jumping guard. It was ridiculous. Crone is amazing at jiu-jitsu. But when you're doing that horse stomp shit to like close distance, this is the point I tried to make to Brian Campbell. You can like what he did in that fight. And again, I'll give, he's, he's, a, he's a gutsy martial artist. But if you're gonna take that Gracie idea of how you fight to the nth degree, you already know what his limit is. You just saw it. There's no real way to get better at that if that is what your North Star is. So Mackenzie Dern 
Um, still some hope for her. She's still quite young. So he goes, and there's hope for Crone in the sense that if he trains, if he gets really good at his boxing and he really puts some effort into it and he really like works on a double leg, well, yeah, but if all he's going to do is this, how much better can you get at a style that has been proven since the late 90s, early 2000s doesn't work to, to beat elite guys, to beat really elite guys? So my hope is that he expands what he is training because his jiu-jitsu is god-tier. It is absolute god-tier amazing. Everything else, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how good it is, you know? Um, it's it's, it's, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to get better if your entry into a takedown is a horse stomp. You're going to get someone's going to light you on fire, and Cub did, and you know he kind of tired at the end. You know what do you think Josh Emmett would do to him, right? Who's constantly moving and can wrestle his ass off and can clinch break and has heavy knockout power. Dude, Josh Emmett would do bad things to him. So my point is that's not that doesn't have to be an inevitability. It, ne it just needs to be, it needs to be done away with. All right. Mo of these. What are your thoughts on religious fighters and the connections they draw between prize fighting and religion? I found Thomas, Gifferson, Thomas Gifford's comparison to, of himself to Jesus to be very troubling, inappropriate application of a religious belief system to prize fighting. Should we expect more from religious leaders in the community in terms of counseling fighters and rooting the more unhealthy perspectives out. This is not a, uh, I'm not religious, so I don't really take any, I don't have a role to play in this conversation. Suffice to say, there are, I, I think fighters say a lot of crazy things, and I try not to hold it against them because I think they need a lot of that to get the best out of themselves. You know, Crone probably needs to believe the world is flat to, I don't know, to have a, have a sense of place in the universe perhaps, or, you know, that Jesus, for whoever is a fighter, that really compels them. Yeah, I don't, I don't share any of those beliefs. In fact, I think some of them are silly. But to me, I, I try not to. There are certain views about the about people. There, are, when fighters express certain views, I try not to police them. I mean, if they're going to go out there and say, you know, something super awful about a person, something, you know, let's just say insane, something so we could all agree was insanely racist. All right, I mean. I don't think any of us will want that, but like, if they think Jesus helps them fight better, or that the earth is flat and that allows them to fight better, I don't really get in the way of it. Have you ever heard of any fighters or refusing to fight in certain areas or commissions for political reasons? Yeah, sure, happens all the time. Or certain refs, or, yeah. I know certain people who won't fight in Texas. Um, Do you think the end is near for Ali? I believe we're talking about Ali Abdelaziz with his criminal charges coming up uh, and his, you right here, shady background. Um, I think Ali is a lot, whatever, I, I certainly I recognize that he is a polarizing figure. I've not spoken to him in a long time. Uh, Ali is smarter than people give him credit. I would be very hesitant to say that the end is near for him. Um, Certainly he has, I think what I would say is that there are more people discussing him than there have been before, for better or for worse. Uh, these two charges he has that were made public, uh, there's more visibility around his activities. But is the end near for him? I have heard many people say that for a long time and it never comes true. Not saying it won't ever come true, not even saying necessarily it should come true, depending on the situation, but like, 
in terms of his managerial practices, there are more is more um, uh, attention being shed, and again, his general activities in the space in MMA generally, there's been more attention being shed. There is a shift there. I can feel the implications of that shift. Your guess is as good as mine. Uh, with champions in this era moving up or down for more titles trying to solidify their status instead of defending their title numerous times is it possible we're coming full circle where it may actually be more impressive for champions to go lengthy title reigns than rack up defenses oh excuse me to go on lengthy title reigns and rack up defenses. I said this before about Demetrius Johnson, I'll say it again. It is more impressive to stand a post in a weight class and take on wave after wave of contender, assuming you can do it for a long time, than to jump around weight classes and take fights that could be favorable on a given night, right? It will always be harder to do what St. Pierre and, and Silva and Demetrius Johnson did. I don't mean to undermine what McGregor did against uh, Alvarez. That was magical, that was special, that was amazing. But do I put it on par? with GSP's title defense reign, or Silva's, or DJ's, I do not. I do not. Remember, when you are a DJ, and we're St. Pierre, and when you're Silva, that person you're fighting, that's the biggest night of their life. Beating you, if you're Silva, in his prime, that changes their whole world, changes history. It's like the amount of pressure every time is extraordinary, you know? Who wins the 2020 presidential race? Fuck if I know. Gah, I don't know. I will say this. In terms of statistical polling, Trump is the uh, most unpopular president in history. Now, polling um, is, a, is a relatively recent, not recent, but uh, certainly did not exist in the 1900s. Uh, excuse me, the 1800s. So when we say he's the most popular president in history, we're only talking about insofar as polling through landlining and that kind of a thing was really in place. Um, but in terms of the advent of that, he is, he is, this is not the dispute, this is well demonstrated. He's the most unpopular. And here's the reality, he might get elected again. I think it'd be very foolish to look at those numbers and suggest he couldn't do it twice. He just, he just inverted the relationship. Rather than trying to cast a wide net, like, so the primaries dictate that you have to sort of throw red meat to the base on both parties. And then when you get to the presidential space, you cast a wider net for audiences. Um, he actually, I think, inverted that relationship where he gave, yes, the red meat to the primary audience and then just did that writ large. And so he could, that's why it's like, you know, you see all these articles like, why won't so-and-so, like, why won't farmers who are being affected by the trade war, why won't they abandon Trump? because they are rock-ribbed. He, ha he has such a grip on them by virtue of uh, uh, the policies won't undo, at least not in the short run, um, the favor he's curried by really playing to their interests, at least verbally in the, in the short run. Hey Luke, we've seen plenty of deaths lately in boxing and also the beatdown of Gifford last week in MMA. Seriously, when will someone start enforcing more rules to protect fighters? Uh, who do you think should implement them? All, all of them. Corners need to be better. They need to be trained better. Um, referees. Uh, commissions themselves when pulling referees if they need to. Um, yeah, a lot of different ones. The current system is not very good. I think we need some sort of rule set or training provided to officials so that they know when to stop. Rules I don't know about. Better training we absolutely need about. There's a video 
I put on um, for Morning Combat. I've said this before, like, oh, after the whole Gifford incident, it's like, what's it going to take for someone to throw in the towel more? Death. And even then, I'm not sure that'll work. But the answer is death. It's a grisly, awful answer, but you have, it's not our worst coaches doing it, it's our very best coaches doing it. Um, commissions say well, that we don't want the corners to do it, we want the referees to get involved, but the referees aren't getting involved, which means it falls back on the corners. Um, the, all the people you're supposed to be able to rationally convince to take more proactive decision-making have all decided that, no, no, we don't know what they're talking about. Um, okay, well, someone's kid is going to have to die. I, I, what else is there? To, what else is there left? They're not responding to, to rational concerns. So someone will have to die. Maybe many people, unfortunately. And that's an awful, bitter truth, but it is where we are. And I have this whole argument like, oh, I know the fighter better. I don't give a fuck. That is such a terrible argument. The, the Raquel Pennington's people trotted that one out after they sent her back out there to go do nothing. Uh, just a, a totally bankrupt argument. Yes, of course, you as their trainer who has been there with them for a very, very long time, you know them better than you or me. I, I don't know Raquel Pennington better. Here's what I do know. Um, if you know someone that much and you care for them that much, and I do believe that they care for them, you are going to overestimate their ability in a fight culture that loves long shot odds, that does not care about long shot odds, that has trained every fighter to say, oh, you feel tired? You're not tired. Oh, you feel hurt? You're not hurt. And they have to, they, they brainwash themselves because they have to over and over and over and over and over and over again, right? This is whole culture of don't quit in MMA, uh, aside from tapping, which is weird because it's a sort of like compartmentalized identity about things. In any event, um, so a fighter can literally turn to the corner and say, I'm done. Or like, oh, no, you're not done. Uh, they're not responding to rational arguments. So going forward, someone's going to have to get seriously maimed uh, or, or, or killed. Is there any way to get the pay-per-view buy rate now that the UFC is selling their pay-per-view cards through ESPN? Nope. Well, unless someone wants to leak it to the press. Seemed like it was a huge story when the deal was struck, but since then I think I've only seen pay-per-view numbers for one card. Yeah, they're proprietary. They're going to keep it secret. Who do you see holding the welterweight strap in, the, in a year from now? Honestly, y'all can hate me for this. I don't. I, you need to... Covington versus Usman for me is a coin flip, which is to say there's a 50% chance you need to start accepting the idea that Colby Covington can be your next champion. With your connection to Shab and his connection to Rogan, could we possibly see you appear on JRE someday? I know he's in LA and you're in DC, so that makes it tough, but I'd love to see it. Yeah, people get asked about this all the time. You can't invite yourself on someone's show. <laughs> Guys, next week I'm gonna, I know, I know that's not what you mean. Uh, maybe, maybe is the answer, I don't know. Um, sure, it'd be great. If not, you know, that's life. Um, Uh, let's see. Is your in-studio interview with Ali Abdelaziz something you regret? No. I think I've pressed him harder on the record than anyone ever. Um, there are things about his past that I've, I've said this before, and this upsets people. I'm not trying to upset anybody. I just don't quite understand all of them. But I made a conscious choice to focus on his managerial practices that I thought deserved to be questioned. Um, and I did. The other part about Ali that his haters need to accept is he is wildly successful and his fighters are extremely loyal to him 
and you have to understand. This is why I'm like, oh, is the end coming? I'm like, you need to dial that back. I don't really believe that. I think you have to. You need to really fully reconcile uh, how well he is liked by the people he serves. Um, at the same time, you have to reconcile that I think you know, going on the record for Zufa um, and saying fighters want to keep their pay secret. I don't know why any manager would ever say that. And I asked him about it. That doesn't make any sense. No, and far from regretting, I think more people need to do what I did. Um, show me an interview on the record that pressed him harder than mine. Any, by anyone, anywhere about not. Not having some, uh, you know, back and forth insult contest about pressing on the issues, the issues that matter. It doesn't exist. Who's the best MMA fighter off their back? Tony Ferguson, T City, someone else. Who's got the best guard? Brian Ortega is pretty nasty. Honestly, we haven't seen it yet, but Crone. Wait till you see Crone's guard. Oof. <laughs> Nightmare. Nightmare for people. Let me see. Did you see GSP's comments on still wanting to fight Habib? God, I do not care. Either fight him or don't. These like, GSP still willing to fight Habib. I don't give a fuck. And same thing. Either I mean, yes, I want to see the fight like you do. But if they're not going to fight, why do I care? All right, we've been going for about an hour. Let's get a few more of these in. People keep asking about my training background. I've said it a million times. Guys, there's nothing special about me. I am as average as average could be. The difference for me is I've spent many, many years in gyms, and because I kind of sucked, I had to ask a lot of questions. In the striking department, I had to ask a lot of questions. In the wrestling department, I had to ask a lot of questions. Nothing ever came natural to me. And when nothing comes natural to you, you have to understand what's happening from a biomechanical standpoint, from a, from a strategy standpoint, uh, to get anywhere. Right? You know, um, how do I set up my footwork for a shot in wrestling? Um, where do my hands need to be if I want to counter with a left hook over the top? Like, all, none of these things ever were like, for example, at one time, uh, it's a true story, I was watching Mike Easton. Mike Easton's such a great athlete. Back when, uh, God, what year was this? 05, maybe? And I was asking him how he did something, and he couldn't explain it to me. He was just like, I just do. And then he would go and do it, and he would make it look effortless. And I'd be like, how the fuck do you do something like that? I forget what, I think it was like a guillotine choke or something like that. I forget exactly what it was. No, maybe it was like an anaconda. I don't know. Point being was it was effortless. And I was like, fuck, man. And I have found that the best teachers are of two varieties. One, you get like the Gordon Ryans who are so good that they can, you know, they're gods talking to mortals when it comes to their craft. And the other ones are the guys who sucked, right? Or not suck, we're just average who had to like figure every step out of the way. I'm not good, like sparring footage of me would not tell you a whole lot, you know? Um, yeah, I'm bigger than most people and if it came to some scuffle here in the in the yard, I'd probably be okay, uh, you know, if it was a one-on-one -on -one scenario, but short of that, there's absolutely nothing interesting about my background other than, dude, I didn't miss a class. I read every book I could read. I found every training manual. I bought every, every assholes. DVD collection, and I watched all of it. And, oh, you know, 15, 20 years later of doing that, you pick up a few things along the way. But I'm, I'm actually, I'm not glad that I suck because I'm in for a lot of heartache, but, or average, I didn't suck, I was just average. But it, it helped me, it helped me. 
do you play video games? No, but I've been dying to get into video games. I just don't know where to start. Because now I see PlayStation 5 is coming out. Do I get that? Do I get the new Xbox? Are the consoles dying? Do I get Google Stadia? I don't know what to do. Uh, how would you fix high crime rates in Chicago or Memphis? That is beyond my purview of understanding. I don't really understand the crime in Memphis or Chicago enough to sufficiently give you a good answer, so I will not answer it. LeBron James versus Cam Newton. Three years to train MMA at a top academy. Who wins and why? LeBron, because he can stay healthy. Do we get to see Alex Pereira versus Israel Adesanya 3 in the UFC? Maybe. Luke, I noticed the radio interviews are back, but with a 45-second promo. Was that a condition to bring them back? Love the content, just curious. Well, that was a condition to bring those two videos back. There's still a... There's still a, um, a temporary, I'm told, moratorium on them. When they'll come back, I don't know. But to get those two posted, yes, I had to do that. How would you explain Yair being so obdurate, despite him probably knowing he's wrong? Surely he knows he's losing fans. You mean stubborn? About, like, Jeremy? Who the hell thinks they're going to go to a main event and 15 seconds in, they're going to say they want out? And of all people, Jeremy Stevens? It's like, I don't know if Jeremy Stevens beats Yair tonight. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, I don't know. But do I think Jeremy Stevens is afraid of Yair? No. Do I think Yair is the best person that Jeremy has fought? No. Um, that's a weird one. I don't... There's a lot of people whose metal you could question in this game. Jeremy Stevens is the last of those guys. Let's see. Do you think Leon Edwards versus Ponzinibbio makes sense? Yes, but I think Ponzinibbio is injured. Well, in the military, did you ever interact with any special operations operators? Yes. If so, what are the differences you saw in them from the conventional? A couple of different ones. Uh, and there's many different tiers. Uh, I got to work very briefly with the ROC Marines. Those are the Republic of Korea Marines. Those boys were hard. Whoa. Pause. <laughs> uh, they were tough. They were tough dudes, man. They were real tough dudes. They just, they had a, they had a zest for combat that was hard to explain. Uh, and I briefly, briefly on one training exercise got to work with uh, recon marines who were learning how to do call for fire missions, which was what I did. Right? So again, if you guys don't know how artillery works, you see those big cannons that go like that. They can't see where they're firing, right? They, someone has to be the eyes. They're called Ford Observers. So that's what I did. I was on the hill with the Ford Observers. You watch the bombs land, and you, then you call back to the gun line to tell them how to adjust either the round, the, the charge, you know, the elevation, all kinds of stuff, right? Seven red bag, bitches. All right, Luke, it's been two live chats and no fun fight questions. So I'll do it. Gaethje versus Korean Zombie, 155. Gaethje. Adesanya versus MVP, 185. Boy, Adesanya would go to work on him. Yoel Romero versus DC, 205. Ooh. I'd say DC. Yoel Romero versus Rashad Evans in his prime at 205. I'd say Yoel. Sadiq Youssef versus Hakeem Duwadu. I think Youssef is uh, a potential title challenger in the future. He's extremely talented. Marlon Moraes versus Devison Figueredo, 135. I'll go Marlon. I'll go Marlon. 
All right, well, how long it's been? I'll do a couple more. Thoughts on El Camino? I'm halfway through, fuckers. Here we go. Y'all love the PED talk. For guys like Jones, Romero, and Costa, do you think they deserve to be labeled accused as steroid users when USADA explained or cleared them to an extent for their violations? Even having USADA defend you doesn't untarnish your name. Uh... Grab one more here, and that'll be the last. Uh, okay. All right. Uh, yeah, this is why I don't take anybody seriously when they're they're like super anti-doping. I think. Look, here's what's generally, if I if I understand some of the objections to my arguments, they go something like this. Um, I think most people don't really exactly know what different PEDs use or how they're used. But what they basically view is that there's a difference between chemical help and every other kind of help. By the way, there's not, but okay, they generally view it that way. And that um, uh, PEDs are bad in, in virtually all circumstances. They don't really view the line between PEDs and what's not a PED as all that blurry, even though it's extremely blurry, especially when you begin to get uh, like real TUEs into effect. But what's really interesting to me is that I've made this point before. You know, people have always said like, oh, well, the, um, you know, the point of fighting is to really do damage to your opponent, whereas, yes, you do damage to your opponent in football, American football, but that's not the, necessarily the object of it. And I always find that to be just an absurd argument because the idea is not ultimately what the point is. I don't really care what the point is. The point is what are the health outcomes? When it's all said and done, what, what are the array of health outcomes that you can measure? And by virtually any measurement, American football is worse in no small part because they start do, hitting each other in the head uh, in their, before they're even teenagers, right? One of the things that's an MMA's benefit is the fact that it happens after, after age 18. You can hear my baby. Um, so, uh, the fact that people that end, go, end up and go and watch American football with no sense of like, I mean, there is probably no more PED rated filled out sport than that one, except for maybe the NBA, which I'm sure has just insane levels of PED. So many of your favorite stars in football and in NBA are on drugs, or at least at some point in their career have probably taken some. Uh, you know, in any event, related to this, the reason why I have a hard time accepting people's like real hard stance on this is that USADA is supposed to be identified as the adults in the room and their word is bond. Word is bond, yo. And they come in there and they say, so-and-so, uh, TJ Dillashaw took EPO and here's the evidence. Everyone's like, yeah, fucking A, get these cheaters. And then when USADA comes out and says, you Romero was a victim of this ridiculous contaminated process that's by no fault of his own. He showed us evidence. We did our own independent investigation. All of it checks out. He uh, only gets a short fine for not meeting a strict liability standard, which is uh, the idea that even if it's not, even if you didn't even mean to, you should know what comes into your body, and if you get run afoul of that, some punishment is due. They gave him basically the bare minimum at that point. Um, and the case of Costa, it's a little bit different in terms of disclosing what medical evidence he was using, and then uh, you know what assistance he gave them. It's hard to really know. And then Jones obviously has had a number of different issues. 
uh, but he has steadfastly maintained his innocence. The point being is when USADA comes out and says, no, no, this person, let's take Romero, of course, the clearest case in this one. When Romero is exonerated by USADA, people still decide that he's not been exonerated. Even Ben Askren went on the JRE and said, I mean, if he's been on juice, he's been on juice his entire life because he's always looked like that. Dude, some people just can't, like, this is the whole point about, there's something called the Gaussian curve in human physiology where um, it's like sort of the, uh, with a, with a, they're at the, 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 the best runners at one end of the Gaussian curve. The best, the best, you know, swimmers and sprinters and the best athletes generally. But everybody is so weird because it rewards athleticism, but not as so nakedly as like, you know, you see the, the, the guys who all run track all have a very similar body type. And in MMA, you see some of that, but not really. It's how you get an Adesanya versus a Kelvin Gastelum, and it's very, very close. They are all at some end of the Gaussian curve, but different kinds of curves. All of this is to say, like, what people count as advantages, uh, I think is kind of arbitrary. It's not that drugs don't obviously prevent or uh, offer it and can offer a, a substantial assistance. They, they, they quite clearly do. Um, but many things that we take for granted do that you could easily just as if you wanted to legislate out. Anyway, I'm sort of rambling here a little bit. Um, if if the whole idea is we're supposed to take USADA's authority seriously and then when they exonerate somebody you don't, I just don't take your, I don't, I don't really believe that what matters to you is effective anti-doping. And also this whole snitch thing, did you guys see how they caught Alberto Salazar? No test. You know, there's no test for a guy like that. You know, they caught him, an investigation, snitching. That's how they got it, snitching. You want to catch the big fish, you got to catch the snitching. By the way, the CEO of Nike is implicated in knowing that Alberto Salazar was allegedly doing all these things and there's no public outcry of it because people don't actually really care. What they care about is, ooh, bad sinner, you've done a real bad thing. Let me put a scarlet letter on you and say bad things about you. But in terms of actually, like what do drugs do to sports? Is there really an effective way to get rid of them? These bigger, broader, much more difficult questions, I don't ever really see effective responses to. Fighting is not safer now that USADA is here. It's not safer at all. Let me, let me round out one more point if I may. I have said this before, I'll say it again. You know, <clears throat> you saw this like, oh, we care about the rights of athletes. Please stop lying to the public about this. You take money from a monopsony power that has systemically suppressed the wages and various other rights of athletes. Uh, you don't, the fighters don't pay you, USADA pays you, excuse me, UFC pays you, because that's the one who gets the benefit from the service. The whole benefit, the whole point of USADA is so that in the event that tragedy strikes, USADA, UFC can throw their hands in the air and say, we did everything we possibly could, which is not a bad argument. It's actually a pretty strong one. Just be honest, that's what it is. Just be honest, that's what it is. And, um, yeah, people are hypocrites on this one. Dramatically, I just, there's very few people who I take seriously in all this. Uh, all right, last one. Last one. Is there an unwritten rule that there are some things that can go on in the MMA community that you just can't report on? Not that, it's not that exactly, it's just people just don't want to talk. Not to me, anyway. Is, that the, is it true that Reyes, Dominic Reyes, is a blue belt, and how do you see this playing out as the fight gets into later rounds? Yeah, but so was Nick Rodriguez. It doesn't mean the same thing for an elite athlete in MMA uh, who, yeah, are his cross chokes from the mount good enough? Maybe not. Right, but is he what he needs to do and succeed in MMA good enough? Probably. 
Um, they don't mean the same things. Would you make last one? What'd you make of the comments by Israel's coach Eugene Behrman? Love Eugene. That he was not interested in Izzy going up to fight Jones, but instead would have liked to reward Stipe. He doesn't like John Jones, but that Stipe, excuse me, that Izzy John Jones thing, I don't see how they don't fight at this point. I'm not saying it, but not, 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 I'm not saying next. I don't see how they don't inevitably just fight. I really don't, because that is such a heated rivalry. And I've said this before, Cormier retiring, Kane or retiring, Brock retiring, Stipe is kind of up in the air, we'll see what happens with him. Um, uh, a lot of the big fights that he was gonna have, John have all gone away. What's the biggest fight for him right now? Stipe, maybe, but that Adesanya fight's getting hot. It's a good option for him to make some cash. The Dominic Reyes fight, if he ends up beating Wyman, he's not gonna do that now. Wyman wins, a little bit different, but you know, why would if Wyman loses? It's another one you lose, so. Uh, all right, let's take one more look at this, if we can here. Let's have a gander at the old Bogota. There's some construction going on here, so we'll hold it against him. There it is, folks. This is my little neighborhood here in Bogota, Colombia. You can see everyone here is wearing jackets. All right. Appreciate you guys tuning in. Like the video, subscribe, shoot me an email, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. And until next time, stay frosty.